0: morning, that we will continue with the thought of this song, that we will wait on the Lord, and that we will rely upon His Word this morning. As we get set to continue in the book of Colossians, um, maybe a little bit of explanation is needed. You you probably notice when I I preach, I tend to, um, particularly when it's in the context of a book of Scripture, I tend to circle back and sort of catch us up with what we've talked about in the last few weeks. I found with, uh, actually this is kind of rooted for two different reasons here. Um, I found with the logic of Paul, it's sort of like a freight train. It's just, it goes, and it's so unrelenting and so logical and so... Um, just pressing forward that if, if you're standing beside a train track and you reach out and grab a freight train, you're not going to get on the train. It's going to snatch your arm off. But if you'll start running alongside the freight train, it's a lot easier to hop on as that line of logic is barreling forward. So that's kind of the, the image that I see us getting into here today as we as we try to jump on the freight train of, of of uh, Paul's logic, it's good that we sort of start running along with him just a bit to catch up and kind of know what Paul is presenting and how he's logically working through his teaching. Secondly, I've I've learned uh, just in, in teaching others, and this is a, a technique that I, that I picked up in uh, in graduate school, that if you will t- commit to a circular, maybe not circular, but a cyclical approach to learning where we, where we present ideas and then we, we go back and catch them again and we remind ourselves of those concepts from before, they tend to stick a little bit better. They certainly do in my mind. Um, so as we as we often do as we're working through Scripture, as we take on a new chunk, let's kind of think back and remember what we've uh, how we've arrived at this point. Um, essentially, the line of logic that we've seen in the third chapter. Of Colossians is that because we have been raised with Christ, we are to seek the things that are above. We remember the very first uh, verse of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We are to do this then by setting our minds on things that are above. In verse 5, we're told to put to death the vile characteristics of our sinful past selves we to put aside sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, uh, evil desire, covetousness, which we know as idolatry. Furthermore, in verse 8, we are commanded to put away or put off all manner of these sinful actions, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And then last week, we used the illustration of taking off an old garment and putting on a new attire to represent our new character, our new identity in Christ. We saw last, uh, last week how this, this new attire that results from a compassionate heart will demonstrate kindness, humility, meekness, and, of course, patience. The byproduct of, this, of these compassionate hearts, then, is within the people of God there is an ongoing spirit of forgiveness. We are forgiving others as we have been forgiven. And above all, we're called to put on love, which will culminate in the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. For which we are eternally thankful. Okay? And that's a very inadequate summation of the first uh, 15 verses of Colossians 3, but hopefully it at least gets us thinking along the same track and prepared to continue today in verses 16 and 17. As we look at these two verses, 16 and 17, today, I'd like us to consider a question that Francis Schaeffer asked in his book first published in 1976. And that question was, how should we then live? How should we then live? Some of you might uh, actually have been around long enough to recall the year 1976. Um, it's a while back. and But th- this was a pertinent question then, and it's a pertinent question today. Um, Francis Schaeffer was, of course, a, a Presbyterian missionary, pastor, and theologian. He was also a conservative culture warrior before anybody really knew what that term meant. Um, And because I know very little of the details of Schaeffer's philosophy or theology, um, I, I want to go on record as neither rejecting or endorsing any of his positions. But I do want to give him credit for this question. How should we then live? And today, as we, uh, as we look to Colossians three sixteen and 17, obviously we're not going to pursue this question to the extent that Schaefer did. But I do think it gives us a good sort of guiding question to ask as we comprehend what verses 16 and 17 are going to be telling us. Essentially, since we have been granted a new identity as Christ's chosen ones, since we are called to put on this new attire consistent with our new identity in Christ— How should we then live? And I'd like to bring that question back to us again and again as we work through these two verses today. I think that we'll see in our text today that the answer to that question is going to be found in three points. So if you're taking notes and you like to anticipate the points that we're going to work through, our three points, our three answers to this question of how should we then live are as follows. Number one, we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Verse 16. Then in verse 17, the second response to this question of how should we then live is we are to do all things in the name of Jesus, verse 17. And then we'll take a final short point, which is going to be gathered from the ends of verses 15, 16, and 17. And we'll note that we are to accomplish these first two um, objectives with an attitude of thankfulness. So our our how should we then live question is going to be answered in letting the word of Christ dwell in us, doing all things then in the name of Christ, and finally adopting an ongoing attitude of thankfulness. Okay, points one, two, and three. Just a quick warning, point one is going to be long. It's going to be very long. But when you see 25 minutes go by and we're done with the first point, don't think that you're in in for a 75-minute sermon. The, the second and third points are much, much shorter. So uh, hopefully we won't, um, we won't have any crock pots explode or any roasts dry out or anything like that. But let's, let's begin here by reading our text for today, verses 16 and 17. Again, with the thought, how should we then live? Verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, uh, Sorry, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let us pray. Our great God, we do beseech you this morning, and we ask for your guidance. We ask for the the uh, the instruction of your Holy Spirit as we seek to comprehend uh, the Word that you have communicated to us on the pages of Sacred Scripture. We are eternally grateful, Lord, that you have written a book. And that you have answered every question of life. Today, you are going to answer for us the question of how should we then live. And Lord, I pray that that the words of Scripture would sink deep into our hearts today and that they would form the basis of our steps going forward. And Lord, that all that we do, all that we say would bring glory to you, our Creator, our God, and to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So in answer to our guiding question, how should we then live? Point number one, we are to, as verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So we need to, we need to address this bit by bit, phrase by phrase as we work through this text. First of all, what is the word of Christ? How how can we define that? How can we uh, understand that? Well, first, some commentators have attempted to try to understand this word of Christ essentially as the word about Christ, which would mean this statement reads, let what you have heard about Christ dwell in you. And while that may not be a particularly egregious error, I don't think it quite sums up what we're dealing with here. Others have seen this word of Christ as essentially synonymous with the word of God, or simply put, that Christ's word is equal to Scripture. This interpretation, I think, is preferable, especially in light of the claims of John chapter 1 concerning Jesus as the living word or the Logos. Most of us have probably memorized these first three verses of John chapter 1, so I won't ask you to turn there. But, but we read in, in John's prologue to the gospel, "...in the beginning was the word, the Logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made." So follow this line of thinking. If the Word, the Logos, this one who is identified as Jesus Christ, was with God from the beginning, and if this Logos was actual God from the beginning, and if God created all things through the Word of His power, and if everything that's ever been created was created through the Logos, Jesus Christ, then our only possible conclusion is that God's Word and the Logos convey the same power and authority. So as we're, as we're dealing with Colossians 3 verse 16 and we're identifying what this word of Christ is, let's make sure that we elevate Jesus' words in the same way that he elevated his own words. This is why we say that Jesus and God speak with the same will and purpose and authority. And this is why we also make the claim that God's special revelation to man is communicated to us in written form on the pages of Scripture, and also through the living Word, who was Jesus Christ. When we think about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself actually lays out a basis for, un- for us understanding his Word as God's Word. In the Sermon of the Mount, again and again, we, we hear this phrase, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, and then that would be followed by, but I say." the you have heard it said part is referencing the teaching that the Jewish people would have heard again and again and again from the law, from the prophets. So for Jesus to say, you have heard it said, but I say, he is taking his words, his direction, his teaching, his proclamations, and he is elevating that to the same level as scripture. Of course, he never contradicts scripture. His words always bring clarity, expansion, and even fulfillment to the writings of the law and the prophets. But this is the basis for us understanding that the Word of Christ is the Word of God, and it is synonymous in power and authority with the writings of Scripture. Consider then also the first phrase of verse 16 Let the Word of Christ dwell. Notice that this phrase takes the form of a demand of Scripture not a suggestion. In the original language, this word dwell is written in the imperative mood, and that might not mean anything to you, and it didn't mean anything to me until I sort of dug into this a little bit, but but the way that word is inflected in the Greek indicates that it is dwell is not simply a description of an action. It is a command to an action. In other words, let dwell. Let the word dwell. And I'd like to suggest to you that because this is a command, we could very easily equate this phrase of let the Word dwell in you to the phrase submit to the Word. We can see this call to let God's Word dwell in us as a command to obey, submit to, and follow the teachings of Christ. We're called then to submit ourselves to the words of Christ. So then if Christ's words are equal in authority with the rest of Scripture— and if Colossians 3.16 commands us to submit ourselves to the Word of Christ, what does it look like to be submitted to the Word, to the Word of God? I'd like to present to you four things that should flow from genuine submission to God's Word. Four things. Okay? First of all, if we submit to God's Word, we will read God's Word. We cannot claim to be people of the book if we never open the book, right? And I'm afraid that in this modern age, the sort of ubiquitous nature of Scripture, it's everywhere. Uh, we, we've got it on our phones. We've got a thousand different um, study Bibles. We've got, it, it's, it's, there's never been a time in history, particularly within our culture, that the Word of God is so readily available. And anytime something is readily available, people tend to devalue it. When we print money and money and more money and more money, the value of that money goes down and down and down. It's just a simple matter of supply and demand. Um, But with the Word of God, it should not be that way. We should not allow the blessing... Of, of an abundance of resources in terms of God's word. We should not let that be the source of apathy for us. We need to keep a very, very high appreciation for the fact that we have in our possession the written word of the one who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power. It's a very important thing for us to not grow apathetic. We must read God's word. And I, I didn't plan to talk about this this much, but, but I think while we're, while we're here, maybe we just should mention there's different types of reading. Some of us um, engage in a daily reading plan where we're devotionally reading through the Word of God, and that's wonderful. We should all be doing daily devotional reading of God's Word. We should also be engaged in deep study of God's Word as we work through what His Word means and, and work through the difficult passages of Scripture, take in the whole counsel of God's Word, and that can only be done through in-depth study. So we should all be finding time within our lives for in-depth study of God's Word, as well as consistent devotional reading, where we are just making the Word of God part of the, uh, the warp and woof, to use a very, very old term, of our lives, right? It's just the consistent pattern of life for us to be engaged with Scripture, Secondly, if we are to submit to God's Word, we will not only read it, but we will believe God's Word. We have to guard against the tendency to read God's Word and then insist that it mean what we want it to mean. Many people claim to have a high view of Scripture, when in reality, they just have a high view of their view of Scripture. And we have to guard ourselves against this. This happens when our traditions begin to impact what we think God's Word is really saying. But if we are to submit to God's Word, we have to submit to what it actually says, not with what we would be comfortable allowing it to say. Thirdly, if we submit to God's Word, we will trust God's Word. We will trust God's Word. This is another warning for us. So many times in the church at large um, today, we're guilty of claiming to hold high a view of Scripture, but then we abandon pragmatism and programs to accomplish what only God's Word can, can accomplish. I'm reminded of this because in our community, not our community group, our um, connection group last Sunday, um, the elders, I think this was John's task, was to make it clear to potential members that North Hills Church does not engage in a programmatic approach to ministry. The elders don't spend time designing or looking for programs to occupy the energy of the North Hills community. The one thing that we have to offer here is the Bible. That's it. That's it. And if you're here today for anything other than glorifying God through worship and through His Word, um, you will be sorely disappointed. And that is, I believe, as it should be. But may we all be guarded about this and trust that the Word of God will accomplish what it claims to accomplish. Finally, if we submit to God's Word, we will apply God's Word, and this may be more difficult than than it could seem at the outset. But when we apply God's word to our lives, our lives will necessarily begin to look different. There is no way to take the word of the living true God, the creator God, there's no way to take that and apply it to our lives and us come out on the other side looking the same. God's word always conforms people to the righteousness of God. So as we, as we seek to, to apply these, uh, the, the words of God that we read, as we apply them to our life, understand that our hearts and lives are required to submit to those changes when Scripture demands that. In short, to apply God's word is to obey God's word. Consider, even even this just occurs to me, consider the threefold um, command of the Great Commission. We we all know the Great Commission from Matthew 28, and we know that we're told to go and make disciples. We focus on that, and that's great. We're told also that we are to unite these disciples with the church in baptism. We are to identify them with the church in that way. But then there's a third component of the Great Commission that I believe applies to this idea of Scripture, and that is that we are to teach them these, these disciples, we are to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And that's a very important part of this. So in, in view of that, if we look at the command of Colossians 3.16, to let the word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts, if we see that as actually a call to submit to Scripture, then what we're called to do is actually just fulfill the Great Commission. We're, we're called to, to read, to proclaim, to teach the word of God because it is the word of Christ. Well, um, for biblical um, support of this, uh, another passage that that most of you probably have memorized is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we read that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this this is another passage that's read so often, sometimes we, we sort of gloss over it. But we need to recognize that Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is always sufficient when applied to the hearts and and lives of believers. Well, having established that submission to God's Word is necessary, let's consider what it means for the Word of God to dwell richly. Looking back to Colossians 3.16, "...let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom." singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we see from the rest of verse 16 that when the Word of Christ richly dwells in us, two things are going to naturally flow from that. First of all, as we are submitted to God's Word, all of our teaching will be submitted to and flow from God's Word. And as we are submitted to God's Word, also our worship will be submitted to God and flow from God's Word. Teaching and worship are going to be guided by God's Word when it dwells richly in us. So let's begin by looking at at this idea of teaching from God's Word. As our elders take the pulpit each week, they are tasked with teaching and at times admonishing um, the people of God using the Word of God. I hope that you all recognize, I hope that we all together recognize how important it is then for every teaching, every doctrine, every idea that comes from this pulpit to be originated from, to be taken from Scripture. Your elders, I can assure you, take that task very seriously as we seek to engage in true exegesis of the text each week. Now, when I say exegesis, some of you might say, I'm not sure what that means. Well, let me me just clarify this in simple terms the way I have to understand it. Exegesis is simply a word that means taken out of, taken out of. So when we exegete the truth of Scripture, we are not reading our ideas into Scripture. We are taking the truths of God's Word out of the text and proclaiming them to you. This should always be done in the proper context with no compromise to the meaning of the text of Scripture. Here at North Hills, we engage in what we call systematic exposition of Scripture. This is why we start at the beginning of a book and we work our way systematically through that book of Scripture. That's the way God's Word has been transmitted to us. That's the way we try to teach it and and submit to it. For us, this means verse-by-verse expositional teaching through books of the Bible. God's Word is not to be used as a jumping-off point for the speaker to share his point of view, nor should God's Word be used as a pathway to establish an agenda or to address the pastor's pet peeve. Systematic exposition of the Word should always seek to establish and highlight the will, purpose, and intention of God as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. So the glory of God will flow from systematic exposition. In addition to our time of preaching, though, this is not the only time that North Hills looks to the Word of God for teaching and admonishing. We have Sunday morning Bible studies. Um, our students have a time of study on Sunday evenings. We open God's Word in community groups. We have a men's Bible reading time on Tuesday mornings. It's very early, but it, but it happens, and you can avail yourself of that if you like. Um, there's a ladies' Bible study and And even th- there are other informal times of of discipleship that happen among brothers throughout the week. Um, I know that it 's not uncommon um for, for me to say hey let's let 's have lunch to 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 somebody in, in the church and, and inevitably that turns into a discussion about scripture or at ten thirty at night, I get a text from George, "Hey, what does this mean? Um, George is bad about those late texts, which is fine because i 'm always up n- no big deal." But there's, there's an ongoing pursuit of God's Word uh, among the people here, and that is as it should be. I would encourage that, and I would encourage us to even increase that. Um, let the Word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts as we seek to follow Him and submit to His instruction. I had a, a text of Scripture here that, uh, that is taken from Acts 18. We won't read it in its entirety, but this, this text um, talks about Apollos. And we'll remember, um, if you've studied through the book of Acts, that Apollos was a native of Alexandria. He was a Jew, and he had come to Ephesus. And he's known as a man who is competent in the scriptures, meaning he knows the word of God. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. And as he was speaking in the synagogue, Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They drew him aside and instructed him. They admonished him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And upon that instruction then, he went to Achaia, and the brothers there were encouraged to accept him. And when he arrived, we see that Apollos greatly helped those who had believed through grace. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. How did he do How did he do that? He refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was, in fact, Jesus. That Jesus was, in fact, Christ. Sorry, flip that. Okay, so we see here in the case of Apollos that he's a man who studied in the Scripture, who still had some errors, some things that needed to be sorted out. And upon that correction, again, based on Scripture, he is able to accurately refute and challenge the the, the unbelief of the Jews in a very public way, proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. So this is the important the the importance of allowing God's Word to flow through us in the form of teaching and admonishing one another. Well, just as we are to be submitted to God's Word in our teaching, we are also to be submitted to God's Word in our worship, in our worship. As we consider this phrase um, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs from Colossians 3.16, Um, I actually ran across an article that was very helpful in understanding this. This is an, uh, an article for Founders Ministry written by Ken Pouls. And he reminds us, Ken does, that the musical forms that we see of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs have very likely evolved, not likely, but they've definitely evolved over the years. So that when we hear those words, we actually don't even think about exactly what Paul was thinking about as he wrote this. So for the Psalms, most of us, when we think of Psalms, we think of the 150 Psalms that are collected in the Old Testament. And we, you know, maybe we've, we've seen some of these Psalms set to music. We've got a Psalter that has all of the Psalms set to music. We think of the Psalms in that way. But for Paul, a Psalm would have been a particularly Jewish expression, an ancient Hebrew song form. That would have most often been accompanied by stringed instruments. So Paul had a very particular understanding of the psalm, whereas we have sort of a, a general understanding of psalms. To Paul, I'm sorry, uh, to us, the hymns that we think about um, would be likely these classic hymns of the Christian faith, uh, hymns such as "And Can It Be," or "When I Survey the Wondrous Cross," or maybe "Amazing Grace." These were most likely written after. All of these were actually written after the Reformation by writers such as Charles Wesley, Isaac Watts, and John Newton. So this represents an understanding of hymns some 17 centuries removed from what Paul was thinking of in his context. When Paul thought of a hymn, he would most likely be thinking of a Gentile concept. Most often, hymns were songs that were sung in praise of a hero or to a pagan deity. This idea is confirmed in the writings between Pliny the Younger, a Roman author of the 1st and 2nd century, and the Emperor Trajan. Listen to what Pliny describes as, as a 1st a, a century Christian worship practice. He talks about the Christians singing hymns to, God, uh, to Christ as a God. To Christ as a God. It was not assumed on the part of the pagans that Christ was God. So the hymns that that, that would be applied to Christ would be sort of a pagan practice of glorifying their gods taken and applied to the one true God in the person of Jesus Christ. This has been suggested that this this adoption of hymns into the church is one of the earliest examples of the Christianization of an otherwise pagan practice. Well, in terms of spiritual songs, for us, we would typically think of songs that would be sort of in our modern style, um, essentially pop music with Christian lyrics. But to Paul, this category um, would have been a little bit more specific. It would have been limited to songs that were appropriate and were also instructive for Christian worship, songs written particularly for that purpose. So Paul's song forms in worship flow from a call to submit to the Word of God. If the word of God is richly dwelling in our hearts, as Colossians 3.16 tells us, then we will be committed to that word, we will be submitted to that word in our teaching as well as in our worship. And that's what we see as we work through verse 16. Well, sort of in review of point one, let us remember that this is our guiding question. How should we then live? We are to submit to God's Word, and in so doing, the Word of Christ dwells in us richly. As a result of this, we experience our teaching and our worship also being brought into submission to God's Word. Point two The second answer to this question, how should we then live, is this We are to do all things in the name of Jesus. Turn your attention to verse 17. Whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus. So when the word of Christ dwells in us richly, it manifests itself in every area of our life. Think about that for just a second. We are to do everything in the name of Jesus. I think this, the necessary conclusion that we can draw from this statement is if you can't do something in the name of Jesus, don't do it. Right? Think about that for a second. If there are things in your life that you can't do and say, I do this in the name of Christ, if we were to do all things in the name of Christ, we have to leave out the things that can't be done in the name of Christ. Now, does this mean that somehow we are to limit the activities of our life? I would suggest the opposite. Rather than thinking of this as a limitation on, on, on the aspects of our life, we should think of this as an expansion of God's dominion in all things. Every move you make, every syllable you speak, every thought you think should be judged in light of this verse. Everything you do will be either done unto Christ or it will be sin. There is no moral neutrality. The way you interact with your neighbors, the way you treat strangers, these things will either be done in the name of Jesus or it will be done in sin. Men, the way you lead your family, the way you train your children... For women, the way you order your home, the way you submit to your husband, children, the way you honor your parents—all of these will be done either in the name of the Lord, or they will be done in sin. There is no moral neutrality. Additionally, how we do our jobs—I'm not trying to preach Evan's sermon uh, next week. He's going to—he's going to hit on all of this, I think. But—but but it's important to think through this: how we do our jobs, how we spend our leisure time, how we pursue hobbies. How we take vacations, what we do for entertainment, what we watch on TV, how we engage the the culture, how we participate in politics—all of these things. There's nothing that is not touched by this verse that commands us to do everything, whether it be in word or in deed, to the glory of Christ in the name of Christ. There is no moral neutrality. One other thing: What about our worship? What about our worship? Some of us have sinned during this worship service by performing mindless, perfunctory acts of worship without truly engaging our hearts and minds in these ordinary means of grace. Take a moment and think about this. Everything that we do, every move we make, every syllable we speak, every thought we think will either be done unto Christ or it will be sin. There is no moral neutrality. So, Considering this, I, I can't help but, but turn our attention to Romans chapter 14. There's a couple of passages that come to mind. Romans 14 is first. We read in Romans 14 verse 23, "For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin." While this is specifically addressing the issue of eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, the general principle of this statement is consistent with the command of Colossians 3:17. That we are to do everything, word or deed, in the name of the Lord. Also, 2 Corinthians 10 teaches us that we are to bring every thought captive in obedience to Christ. I'd like for us to turn and look at this one, if you will. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a great reminder for us that the actions that we take and the words that we speak flow from the thoughts of our mind. Everything we do originates within our mind. We must therefore submit our thoughts and our thinking to God first if we are to do everything in word and deed to Him. So Second Corinthians 10 verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. How do we do that? We do that by taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Even our good works are subject to the criteria of verse 17. What does it mean to do everything in the name of Jesus? We have to ask that question. Does this simply mean that we we utter the mantra in the name of Christ? in the name of Christ over what we do and somehow that fixes um, our actions and makes them glorifying to God. That's not at all the case. And if we need an example of that, we need to look no further than the sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19. If you'll remember, they were these were sons of a Jewish, uh, a Jewish priest and they were attempting to cast out demons by Jesus. And in telling the demons, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, he's, they're telling these demons to come out, the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, "Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize. But who are you?" And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I would charge us not to think as the sons of Sceva did that the name of Jesus is some incantation that that makes things holy. It's, that, that's not at all what we're talking about here. When we talk about doing things in the name of Christ, we are exhorted to do things in a way that represents him well. If you think about the uh, most, uh, many of us, I don't, I don't know about most, but many of us seek to catechize our children. We work through catechism questions with them. And there's a number of different options. And if you're not working through a catechism, I would strongly encourage you to do that. But in most of the Christian catechisms, the very first question is, Do we know this? What is the chief end of man? Exactly. And the answer to that is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right? So for for us to do things in the name of Christ is to glorify our Christ, to glorify God. When we do that, we are considering our actions. We are considering our words. And if we are to do those in the name of Christ, we are to do those to his glory. So it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the intention. How then should we live? Well, we should live to the glory of God. We should live doing all things in the name of Christ. Well, our third point and final point today is a quick one. As we ask this question, how should we then live? Our third answer is we are to do all things with an attitude of thanksgiving. And I'd invite you to look at verses 15, 16, and 17 of Colossians 3. Turn back there. We see in verse 15 that we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, and we are to be thankful. Verse 16, we see that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and we're to do this with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And then in verse 17, we see very, very clearly, whatever you do in word or do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as regenerate believers, how should we then live? We should live our lives in an ongoing state of gratitude. Now that sounds like very good advice, but I want to tell you it's, it's more than just good advice. It's the command of Scripture. Why is this important? Everything in chapter 3 of Colossians is a result of us being justified by the work of Christ on our behalf. That is the source of our thankfulness. That is what enables us to obey these commands of putting off certain characteristics and taking on a new attire as reflecting our new identity in Christ. We who were at enmity with God have been brought near by the atoning work of Christ. We can't put off the old and put on the new in hopes of being saved. We do that out of our gratitude. We don't let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts or let the word of God dwell in us richly in the hopes that we will be brought into Christ. We do that as a result of being brought into Christ. So all of this flows from an attitude of thanksgiving because we recognize the source of this whole chapter is our position in Christ. There is nothing in this world that we should be more grateful for than the fact that we have been redeemed by the eternal Son of God. If we consider 1 Thessalonians 5, Thessalonians 5, verse 18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you are in Christ, you should be continually, without ceasing, giving thanks to God who has saved you. Hebrews 12, verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. May we always offer acceptable worship as we give thanks for receiving this kingdom of God which cannot be shaken. We are brought into the kingdom by the work of Christ. So our thankfulness, our thanksgiving, our gratitude toward God should flow from our lives if we are living as we should. How should we then live? It's very simple because we are made new in Christ we should put off the old sinful characteristics we should put on the new attire that accurately reflects our new identity we should submit to the word of Christ which dwells richly in us we should teach and admonish and worship with God's word as the driving force and we should do all of this in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ to the glory of God with thanksgiving for what he has accomplished in Christ let's pray together Again, Lord, we come to you in the spirit of gratitude for what you have done. We bring our worship to you in the spirit of gratitude for what you have done. Lord, as we ask the question, because you have placed us in Christ, because you have loved us, because you have chosen us, how should we then live? Father, help us to answer this according to scripture. Bring to bear upon our hearts and minds the truth that we are to have your word dwelling in us richly. Bring to us our hearts and minds, Lord, that we are to do everything in the name of Christ. Father, give us us grace as we submit to your word, as we put off the things that we ought not do that can't be done in the name of Christ. And as we turn everything else to your glory, let us consider How should we then live our lives? God, give us the grace and the mercy to live for you. Give us the courage to bear the name of Christ well in this world. All that you may be glorified and that your son be praised. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.